Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as we begin a new section in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Please give your attention as I read God's word. Paul writes, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge... Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So again, last week we finished uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in which the Apostle Paul addressed issues in Corinth surrounding marriage and divorce. Of course, the question involved a faulty premise under which the Corinthians were operating. They thought, as we saw in chapter 7, verse 1, that it was good that a man should not touch a woman or that a man should have sexual relations with his wife. And this led to a false sense of asceticism that we saw in weeks past. And Paul then corrects this thinking. He corrects his thinking by saying that husbands and wives should engage in sexual activity, that they should render to each other, as some translations have it, their conjugal rights. Paul then addresses the issue of divorce, and in that, when he talks about divorce, he echoes the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this matter, except with the addition of the case of the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. So if you remember when we looked at that passage, when he talks about divorce in, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7, he says, now this, I give you a commandment from the Lord. And then when he goes to talk about the issue of abandonment, he says, now this area, the Lord had not spoke, but I'm giving you my commandment here. So then after talking about marriage and, and divorce, he then goes on to provide a principle a principle that guides the rest of the chapter in verses 17 through 24. And the principle namely is this, that in whatever situation God has called you in, that is the situation in which you are to remain, which you are to walk in, in which you are to sort of, as we said, bloom where you're planted. 
And then he applies this principle to five different situations that we saw in the rest of that chapter from verses 25 to the end of the chapter. He addresses those who are engaged concerning virgins. Um, When we looked at that, we talked about this is not just people who have never been married. These are those who are betrothed, betrothed here or engaged. Then he talks about those who are married. Then he also applies the principle to those who are married compared to those who are unmarried. Then he talks about and applies that uh, principle uh, to those who have virgin daughters. And then finally, to widows. And in each one of those situations, if you remember, Paul seems to be emphasizing the benefits of singleness. He seems to be emphasizing singleness over marriage. And he does so because, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 29 to 31, he does so because, as he says here, the time is short. The time is short. We are now in the last days, and Jesus Christ's return is imminent. It could come at any moment. The time is short. And he goes on, and says, goes on later to say that the form of this world is passing away. So in other words, don't focus on this age as much. Uh, we don't know how much time we have. We need to be focused on the Lord. So if you're single, he urges the single people to stay single. Because he says, as we saw in verse 28, he would spare them trouble in the flesh. But he also goes on to say that he is, he, or I should say, Paul is careful not to discourage marriage, even though he seems to be emphasizing singleness. He does not discourage marriage. And, and many times he, he goes on and says, if uh, the people marry, they are not sinning if they marry. Uh, so there's... It, it, Really what this boils down to, a lot of the cases in, that we saw there, this is Paul's judgment, as he says, or as we call it, his apostolic advice. He advises singleness, but he says, if you marry, you are not sinning. So that's our recap. Now as we head into uh, the passage here that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13, through 13, this begins another section in the letter. Again, if you recall, when we looked at uh, the introduction to this letter, uh, we saw that uh, there's really two main parts to this letter. And in the first main part, which goes from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul is addressing, uh, or I should say to the end of chapter 6, Paul is addressing uh, the report that he had received from Chloe's household about uh, concerning issues that were going on in the church in Corinth. And then from chapter 7, verse 1 to the middle of chapter 16, that's the second main section in which Paul is responding to a list of questions that he has received from the Corinthian church. Now, he's dealt with the first question, marriage and divorce, in chapter 7. And the clue that he is changing subjects is where he says, now concerning. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote. Again, in chapter 7, verse five, uh, 25, now concerning virgins. And now we see it again here in chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. So the question here in chapter 8 deals with the issue of things or food offered to idols. And this section here will go on from chapter 8, through chapter 10, really goes on to chapter 11, verse 1. But we'll just say for intense, all, you know, all intents and purposes, it's chapter 8 through chapter 10. 
Now, this is going to sound familiar to you, I'm sure, because if you remember in our study through the book of Romans, we also looked at this issue. But this issue in Romans was more from the standpoint of Christian liberty, of Christian liberty and the difference between the stronger and the weaker brother. Here, Paul, in this section, is going to talk in, 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 in ways that overlaps quite a bit with what we saw in Romans but he is looking at the issue here specifically of things uh, offered to idol or food offered to idols. So we're going to see this again, uh, but in this case, how this problem, how this issue manifested itself in Corinth. So in this passage that we're looking at here, Paul is going to identify the problem and then offer a basic solution. That's what chapter 8 is all about. He identifies the problem going on in Corinth. And he offers a basic solution to it. Now chapters 9 and 10 will expand on that. But he gets sort of like the meat or the, the, the main thing out of the way in chapter 8. So this section I think can be broken down into four parts. The first part is in verses 1 through 3 where Paul gives us the principle. So again as he has in chapter 7 verse 1 and chapter 7 verse 25... Paul begins chapter 8 with these words, now concerning, which indicates a change of subject. Look at verse 1, please, again. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So again, Paul is shifting gears here. He's shifting gears from marriage and divorce to things offered to idols. And that phrase, things offered to idols, translates one word in the Greek, and that word is idolothutos. Uh, idolothutos. It's used 10 times in the New Testament. And really what it speaks of, it speaks of the portion of that sacrifice that is sort of left over after you've offered most of it to the fire, to whatever idol you're, 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 you're worshiping at. So this is the part that's left over, and oftentimes it's eaten by the priest or sometimes with the priest and with the sacrificer, the person offering the sacrifice. And this is really, in a lot of ways, no different than what you see in the Old Testament when God gives the instructions for the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Some of them were completely burned up on the altar. Some were, uh, some were partially burned up. You know, there would be parts that you would burn and offer to the fire on the altar, and the rest would be saved. Uh, and there, and there, in some cases, you would have a communal meal between the priest and the man or woman or family offering the sacrifice. And here, that word, things offered to idols, talks about that portion that was shared by the priest and the person offering the sacrifice. Now, as often happens, right? You know, you go to the store, right? You think, okay, I, you make your list, and you go and you, you shop, and you come home, and you stack, stock stuff away, and then you prepare a meal, and then you eat, and then you realize sometimes you have leftovers, Okay. That's what happens here too, right? In these, in these things offered to idols, right? You know, whatever is left over, perhaps the priest didn't finish. So then that meat, that unused meat, would then get sent over to the marketplace and get sold. So you go to whatever would be the first century Corinthian equivalent of Brown's grocery store. And then in the back in the corner where the meat market is, you'd have a section there of, you know, meat that was offered to idols. And it would be on sale and you, you, know, you can get a good deal for you know, a pound of steaks or whatever the case may be. So then Paul goes on to say that 
We know that we all have knowledge. So after, you know, after signaling that he's changing subjects, he goes on to say, we know that we all have knowledge. And again, like the situation Paul addresses in Rome, it seems that there might have been some conflicts going on over this subject in Corinth. I know it's a shocker, right? I mean, divisions in Corinth? We haven't, well, we, actually, we have seen that before, haven't we? In fact, Paul deals with three chapters talking about divisions in Corinth. Now, as we're going to see, the problem here in Corinth was, again, similar to that in Rome. Some were scandalized. Some were uh, offended, if you will, that others were eating meat offered to idols. Now, Paul's going to say in a little bit here that an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. But that knowledge was causing divisions in the church here in Corinth. Well, what kind of divisions are you talking about? Well, I'll tell you. The kind that pops up when you've got disagreements on minor issues. Right? I mean, I'd be willing to bet if you were to look at uh, you know, a catalog of all the reasons why you have divisions and dissensions in churches, I'd be willing to bet that a majority of them are on non-essential issues, minor issues over which we have a disagreement over, and then that boils up in, and then causes a big issue in the church. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, I don't like the color of the carpet, or we change the songbook, or I don't like the paint on the walls, or the pastor is wearing a tie, or the pastor's not wearing a tie, or I don't like the way, the fact that the pastor has a beard. Now, I know some of you said that if I shaved my beard, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't come here anymore. But anyway, the point, point of the matter is this. The kind of divisions that you get in the church when they divide or disagree on minor issues. Now, Paul acknowledges here we all have knowledge, but then he goes on and says that knowledge puffs up. And we've seen this word before too, right? It makes arrogant. This word puffs up, he's used in the, in the section on the divisions in the church when people were dividing over various leaders in the church and they thought that they were all that in a bag of chips, right? They got puffed up, they got arrogant. I mean, again, is anyone surprised to learn that knowledge can make one arrogant? No, it should be no surprise at all. The church is littered with know-it-alls, people who like to show off how much they know. And these are the ones who relish getting into online debates and proving someone wrong. It's almost as if they wake up each morning thinking about, I'm going to prove someone wrong. You know, the so-called heresy hunters or whatever that you see oftentimes uh, skulking around online. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5 speaks to this issue as, uh, as to the wisdom of speaking up or keeping silent, right? It's a verse that, you know, of course, unbelievers like to say, ah, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. But really, if you, you know, if you understand words, you can kind of understand the meaning of these verses in which verse 4 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. And then verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. Well, okay, what do you do? Do you answer or don't answer a fool? Well, yes, both. Because there's a time when you need to answer a fool. There's a time when a fool is spouting off his, his fool mouth and you need to answer him lest he be wise in his own eyes, lest he thinks he has wisdom when he has none. But then there's also a time when you shouldn't answer a fool because then you get caught up in the debate and, and you're not solving anything. And then usually these debates end up devolving into some kind of uh, silly uh, name-calling thing. So it requires wisdom. But knowledge can puff up. 
The church of Ephesus was guilty of this, right? If, if you recall from our study through the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, the first of the seven letters is addressed to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, now, you know, the structure of all those letters is Jesus describes who he is. He gives a commendation, then he gives a warning. And in this case, the commendation for Ephesus was that they were, they were to be commended for the fact that they didn't tolerate false teachers or false teaching. They were very diligent to make sure that no false thing or no, uh, you know, nothing that was sort of heretical was allowed in the church. They were doctrinally pure, but they had a fatal flaw. And if you, do you remember what that fatal flaw was? The fatal flaw was that they had lost their first love. They lost their first love. They lost the love of Christ. And they became a church that was all knowledge and no love. Now we know from Jesus, right? He is the perfect balance of truth and love. He spoke the truth, but he always did so in love. So we, we ought to, regarding people who have knowledge, we ought to praise God for those in the church, right? Who are knowledgeable about uh, the Bible and knowledgeable about theology. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. In fact, we are commanded by the Bible to love God with our what? Our minds, our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is not uh, pleased when he has a bunch of mindless worshipers or, or people who take no interest in the things of God. I mean, he gave us this book, right? The whole study of theology is this, the idea of the study of God or the, the science of God. And, and he gave us this book to reveal himself to us. So it, it, it does us no good to be ignorant of the things of God. We should seek knowledge. And praise God again for those in the church who are knowledgeable, who, who do study the word, who, who are discerning, who, who do know their theology. But again, knowledge for knowledge's sake only builds up the ego of the man or the woman. Don't want to be sexist. The man or the woman. So knowledge is good. Knowledge for knowledge's sake alone can make one arrogant. But Paul goes on and says, love edifies or love builds up. And this will be the principle then that guides the whole discussion through chapter 10 as Paul continues in verses 2 and 3. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything... He knows nothing as uh, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So those who pursue knowledge as an end in itself, those who who seek knowledge for knowledge's sake need to realize that they don't know as they ought to know. And again, that's one of the marks of arrogance, one of the marks of immaturity, the fact that you don't know what you don't know. Now, we've all uh, raised children, right? And the, your, your child gets to a point in their life when they come up to you and, and they think they know it all, right? They think they know it all. And, and you, know, the, you try to speak into their lives and they tell you, well, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like to live my life. You don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. And you only kinda, you know, you're only kind of left there to probably just, you know, Either put your hand, put your head in your hands, or to kind of chuckle and just say, "Okay." Uh, there's an interesting story about Mark Twain when he was young. Complained about how dumb his father was, how foolish and 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 stupid his father was. And then five years later, when he was a little older, 
he, he, was, he remarked about how, how much his father had grown in his knowledge. And, of course, the joke, of course, is that it was Mark Twain who had become more uh, mature. But one of the marks of arrogance and immaturity is that we don't know what we don't know. But conversely, wisdom is knowing what you don't know, knowing that you don't know everything. Because it doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are, doesn't matter how much theology you know, how much Bible you know, there's always going to be someone out there that is smarter than you. On the other hand, love, which is the greatest of all, as we'll see in chapter 13, right? Love, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. Love is God-like. 1 John 4, 9, God is love, right? And we are never more like our creator than when we love. And the beautiful truth as we see here in this verse, in these two verses, that when we love God, then we are known by him. So I ask you this, what's more important? Having a head full of knowledge, a head full of Bible facts, the fact that you could go to a Bible trivia concert and get a contest and, and get all the answers right, or being known by the God of all creation. I know which one I'd rather take. I would rather be known by God. So moving on now to verses four through six, after giving us the principle, Paul is going to give us the practice, what the practice ought to be based on the principle. Again, the principle is that Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Paul now tells us what the practice ought to be, beginning in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. So when the issue of eating food that has been offered to idols comes up, the right thing to do is to know, based on knowledge, that the idol is nothing. That an idol is nothing. Keep your finger here and turn to uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44. Isaiah 44. We're going to read a somewhat lengthy passage. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, in which the prophet here, speaking for God, says, starting at verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs, works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. 
He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That passage there shows us the truth that an idol is nothing. It shows us the foolishness of an idol because a man fashions it. He fashions the idol with the same wood he uses to cook his meat and to warm his bones when he is cold. Idols are deaf. They are dumb. They cannot deliver us from trouble. They are nothing. In fact, Paul goes on to state a very important truth. There is no other God but one. Now, in the ancient world, each people group had their God or gods, and Jehovah was just thought to be one of many gods. But what does the Bible say in the very first verse? In Genesis 1.1, it states very plainly, what? In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Zeus and his buddies up on Mount Olympus. Or in the beginning, Seti and his buddies over in Egypt. Or, uh, you know, uh, Baal or anybody else. It says God, Elohim, Jehovah. There is only one God, one creator, and it's Jehovah. In fact, today you'll hear some very well-educated people from uh, fancy schools, knowledge that puffs up. They will tell you definitively that the ancient Jews sort of evolved in their, in their sense of that there was one God. In fact, like all other people groups, these smart people will say, well, the Jews, they were like everyone else. They were polytheists. But then they evolved into what we call henotheists. That's the idea that there may be gods, but we have one God. That's what the word heno means. It's Greek for one. So they were, we have one God. In fact, uh, there was a practice in, in, in the ancient days, in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, in 1 Kings, there's a story in which the, uh, the Canaanites uh, were were being attacked by, by Israel and, and you know, they, they lost. They said, well, we lost because we fought Israel in the mountains and their God is the God of the mountains. We need to get them down into the valley where our God, the God of the valley, will, will, will uh, beat them. And then these very smart people will say that they went from polytheists to henotheists, only later they become actually strict monotheists in the sense that there is only one God and that God is Jehovah. Now, these well-educated people say this because they deny the plain truth of Genesis 1-1 and the whole Bible, really, they deny. And their supposed knowledge, as we said, puffs them up. Now, in verses 5 and 6, it may seem as if Paul might be contradicting himself. Look at verses 5 and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things 
and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So Paul just got finished saying there's only one God, but then he says, but if there are other gods, so which is it, Paul? Well, Paul here is speaking hypothetically. He is speaking hypothetically. He had just said idols are nothing and that there really is only one God, but then he goes on to say and sort of assumes the, the, the premise of his, of his um, opponents and says, look, even if there are other gods, which I don't believe there are, even if there are other gods, so-called gods, it matters not for us because we only have one God. And notice this God is triune. This God is triune. Now we see explicitly here two persons of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son. And it is God the Father of whom are all things and for whom are all things. And then one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. So the Father is the one who initiates. The Son is the one, is the agent through whom things are carried out. And then the the Spirit, not explicitly mentioned here governs and oversees all things, as we see in Genesis 1-2, right? After God created the heavens and the earth, we see that the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, hovered. The Spirit of God was overseeing and was superintending all things. So the practice that we ought to do, based on the principle, is this. If idols are nothing, then things offered to idols are fair game. If idols are nothing, things offered to idols is fair game. This is what we know. This is what the knowledge teaches us. And based on that knowledge, food offered to idols is as good as any other food. Recall in Acts chapter 10, right, when Peter is in Caesarea and he's on the rooftop and he's having a dream. And in that dream, he has a vision in which God rolls down this big giant picnic basket Right, this picnic blanket, I should say, on which are all kinds of foods, clean and unclean, foods that a Jew would not eat. And then the voice commands Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, bless his heart, Peter, Peter, Peter. Uh, Peter, trying to be holy, trying to be good, says, far be it from me, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Peter, Peter, Peter. But anyway, and then God tells him what? He says, look, Peter, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. And what that vision meant to say is that the Old Testament system is done with the coming of Christ. The food laws are done with the coming of Christ. All things are clean now. And then that is a pretext then that, that uh, God will use in Peter's life to show him that Gentiles are part of the kingdom because right away he's then invited to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and bring him to Christ through his preaching. Now, all this to say, what about Acts 15, in which you have the letter in the Jerusalem Council that was to be passed around to uh, the other churches in which they are told, among other things, to abstain from things offered to idols. Well, we'll get to that in a moment because Paul's going to address that shortly. So we have the principle, the practice, what ought to follow from the principle, but now we have a problem in verses 7 and 8. And the truth of the matter may be that idols are nothing because there's only one God, but not everyone has that knowledge. Look at verse 7. 
However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now again, you may recall this when we looked at this uh, subject in Romans 14 in the discussion of the weaker and stronger brother. Christians, like everyone else, grow and learn at different rates. Right? No shocker. We come to Christ at different times and stages in our life, uh, and we grow and progress in the faith at different rates. Some progress rather rapidly coming to Christ. They come to Christ and, and they go all in. You know, they don't hold anything back and, and they're, you know, they get themselves involved in every Bible study and, and everything involving church life. And they go out and they witness and they do all these wonderful things and they grow rapidly. Some are just sort of taking their time as they go through. They're, they're basking in the truth that their sins have been forgiven and, and they're resting in that and, and they take joy in the simple things and they grow at a different rate. The point is, is neither one is better than the other. The point is that Christians grow at different rates. Kind of reminds me of, again, the parable of the sower, right? Matthew 13, uh, when the, the good seed hits the, the good soil, uh, what happens? Well, it produces a bumper crop. And then Jesus says, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So when that good seed is planted in the, in the soil of a heart that is uh, ready and, uh, and open to God, it bears much fruit. And in some, it bears a lot of fruit. And in some, it bears a, a good amount of fruit, but not as much as others. We all grow and learn at different rates. This is not meant as a criticism. It's just saying the simple fact that we grow in our faith at different rates. We come to faith in different points in our lives. And when one just comes to faith, they can't be expected to know everything there is about the Christian faith all at once. It's not like, you know, you, uh, you, know, you come to faith, and if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, right? You come to faith in Christ, and you get in one of those chairs, and they jam that thing in there, and all of a sudden, you just, like, download all, uh, you know, Christian theology and history and everything, and all of a sudden, you, you know, seconds later, you wake up, and instead of saying, I know Kung Fu, you're like, and I know theology, or whatever. Um, it's not like that. We also have to keep in mind that Corinth, uh, if you recall, is a very pagan city. A very pagan city with a very pagan culture. One can almost imagine having to do some serious detox coming to faith in such a pagan society where you have to sort of remove yourselves from all of these situations that would cause you to be tempted. All that to say is that in a city in which pagan worship was rampant, anyone coming out of that world would need some serious discipleship. So it shouldn't be hard to understand that not everyone in Corinth would be at the same place regarding the idea or the concept of things offered to idols. There would certainly be people in the church who would uh, see others eating food that was offered to idols and somehow that the idea of participating and endorsing that idolatrous lifestyle. So someone coming out of that lifestyle might see someone who has knowledge eating uh, in a, in a, you know, eating that food offered to idols. And then they would think that's an endorsement. You are, you are endorsing idolatry by eating that. And then eating such food would violate the, the consciences of the people who are coming out of that situation. Now, if the idea of eating food offered to idols doesn't connect, which is why would it, right? We don't live in that kind of culture anymore. Consider some contemporary options, Right. 
the, the most common one, of course, is alcohol, right? And there are some Christian groups that strictly forbid alcohol. My dad, bless his soul, uh, was a teetotaler because he was a fundamentalist Baptist and they didn't drink, right? For, for him, uh, you know, a Baptist hangover was eating too much pizza and drinking too much Pepsi. But, um, you know, some people understand the liberty that uh, drinking alcohol is not forbidden. Drunkenness is forbidden. So there's some liberty there. But if you were drinking and let's say you had someone coming who came out of uh, a life of alcohol abuse and they saw you drinking alcohol, that would that could potentially scandalize that person's conscience. Suppose someone was saved out of the music scene or the, or the acting scene, someone coming out of, you know, like a pop music world or coming out of a, the, you know, the Hollywood culture. And those, those cultures, of course, are well known for their uh, debauched parties and everything that goes on, right? Um, of course, there's nothing inherently sinful in, in acting. There's nothing inherently sinful in playing in a, in a rock band. But that culture can lead to great sin. So Paul says here, food, either eating or abstaining, does not commend us to God. Verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. In other words, food is food. (laughs) Food is food. Eating doesn't make us holier than those who abstain, and vice versa. Not eating doesn't make us holier than those who eat. Again, think of that situation in Romans 14. Right, um, in which you have the stronger and the weaker brother. The stronger brother ought not look at the weaker brother and look down upon him because he doesn't have the knowledge. Vice versa, the weaker brother should not look down upon the older or the, the stronger brother in contempt, thinking that they are licentious and sinning. Again, some of the biggest splits and issues you see in churches is when you come to issues that are non-essential, eating food offered to idols, drinking alcohol, playing cards, watching movies, things like that. These things often wrongly become tests and issues of orthodoxy, right? Some people think that if you, to, if you were to drink alcohol, you're not a Christian. Some people think if you watch movies, Secular movies, you're not a Christian. Why would you put yourself through that? They become issues and tests of orthodoxy. And, and quite frankly, beloved, uh, and I get where they're coming from, but we need to be certain and, and focus on the main thing, right? We need to keep the main thing the main thing. We need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And the Bible nowhere says uh, you are saved if you believe in Jesus Christ and don't drink alcohol and don't go to movies or whatever. Put in whatever you want in place of those two things. We need to have knowledge, but also love that builds up. So this problem here, the problem of someone who has a weaker conscience seeing someone with the knowledge eating the food offered to idol could defile their conscience What is the solution? Well, Paul offers a proposal in verses 9 through 13. The problem is that not everyone possesses the knowledge as it pertains to idols and things offered to them. What do you do? Well, you beware, right? That's what what we see in verses 9 through 12. But beware. 
lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone who sees you who have knowledge eating in, idols, in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Liberty, Christian liberty, just like knowledge, is not for the sake of liberty. We are free in Christ, amen. We are free in Christ and free from the law, but we are not free to do whatever we want, but to serve Christ. It's the whole argument of Paul, of Paul in Romans 6. You have been freed from the law, and you are now what? Slaves to Christ, to righteousness. If our liberty somehow becomes a cause of stumbling for a brother, then guess what? We're the problem. We're the problem. We're singing, sinning against Christ. That's what he says there in verse 12. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Christ died for that one. And if you do something that causes that one to stumble, then you have sinned against Christ, right? Jesus says that, right? If anyone causes any one of these little ones of mine to, to sin, to fall into sin, guess what? It would be better if that person was never born. We got to beware. This is why Paul began this chapter by saying knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We can treat our superior knowledge of theology or of the faith as a sort of a badge of honor. And then we abuse our knowledge and freedom by throwing up roadblocks at the weaker and less mature believers. A person with a weak conscience sees us doing something, and then that weaker brother, as Paul says here, is emboldened. They are they are encouraged in a sense to to violate their conscience and that is something you definitely don't want to cause another believer to do to violate their conscience whether that conscience is correctly informed or not love builds up love builds up we have uh, we live in a society that has sacrificed love and duty and obligation on the altar of personal autonomy my freedom, my autonomy, my rights. It's what we see nowadays in the last couple of, you know, in the last week or so. This whole abortion debate is not really about women's health or reproductive rights. What a what a oxymoron! Reproductive rights. Anyway, it's not about those things. It's not about the issues of rape or incest. It's not about abortions being safe, legal, and rare. It's all about my autonomy. I get to do what I want to do and damn the consequences. The Christian liberty debate can sometimes fall into that category. I have the liberty in Christ to do X. And my weaker brother ought to know that X is not wrong. So I'm going to do it regardless. But if the exercise of our liberty becomes an end in itself instead of love for our brothers, then we sin against Christ. We sin against Christ. So Paul proposes a better way in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's proposal is quite simple. That he would gladly sacrifice his liberty for the sake of his weaker brother. This is love building up. Forgoing your rights 
for the sake of others. Love, biblical love, agape love, is meeting the needs of another at my own expense, if need be. Now, it would be easy and tempting to criticize the weaker brother for his lack of knowledge, but here Paul chooses the path of edification. And with that, that brings us to an end here of chapter 8. Next week, Lord willing, on the 15th, we will look at the first 18 verses of chapter 9, in which Paul now, this proposal that he has given in verse 13, he's going to show that this is his pattern of life. This is how he has served. As an apostle, and we're going to see next time, as an apostle, he had a lot of rights. But he, for, he, he relinquished his rights for the sake of his brothers, for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's going to show you, look, I don't just talk the talk. He's going to show you that he also walks the walk. But we'll save that for next time.